Hey, welcome and good morning. We are so glad that you chose to spend an hour with us here at Connect Church. Now, I'm going to start out with a brain teaser this morning. I'm going to put a list of names here on the screen, and I want to see if you can figure out what each of these names has in common. There's one thing that unites and unifies every single name that you see here on the screen. The 9 a.m. service got this really quickly. I'm wondering if you guys will be able to figure it out or if they're much smarter than you. We'll see, okay? What do you think? What's the uniting factor of of all of these names on the screen. Villains, bad guys, right? Now, don't let the fact that my name is on the screen right now fool you. I probably should have thought that through a little bit better when I created this slide. Although, probably by the end of today's message, some of you guys are going to think I'm the villain anyway. Yes, every single name on this screen is a bad guy in some story or in real life. So there are fictional bad guys, there are real life villains that are there, villains and bad guys from TV, from movies, from literature, and from world history. Now, some of these villains were pure evil, right? They were just known for being bad to the bone. But some of these guys, they were more misunderstood right? They were, they broke bad. They had some bad things that they said or did, but some of them even were redeemed and changed by the end of whatever story arc they were a part of. Some of the names on the screen, particularly some of those real life examples that I have there, I mean, quite frankly, they're some of the worst people that ever lived. I mean, they're, it's like, they were just bad guys with no redeeming qualities whatsoever. And then some of the names on the list, whether fictional and non-fictional, some of them did have some redeeming qualities, some things that, you know, helped us to empathize with them despite the fact that they're typically viewed as bad guys in the story. It's often been said that a story is only as good as the bad guys in it, right? And I think like if you look through this list of very popular, well-known names, you might say to yourself, yeah, I mean, there were some amazing bad guys in there that really made the whole movie amazing or the whole story wonderful because the villains were so great. Now, we're going to come back to this idea about bad guys and stories in just a moment. But I want to remind you that last week we began a new teaching series called If You're Not Ready, You're Perfect. And what we're doing is we're telling the story of Jonah, the prophet, the guy who's at the center of the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. And when I say Jonah, most people think of the whale, right? Like when we think about the story of Jonah, we think the primary point of the story is some guy who got swallowed up by a giant sea creature. But of course, what we're learning and what we're going to see over the next four weeks is that that is only the tiniest part of the story. In fact, it's not even the main point at all. This particular story about a man who lived on the other side of the planet thousands of years ago, it is so rich and it is so helpful for you and I that live in 2019. All right. So to catch you up to speed, if you weren't here last week, or maybe if you've forgotten a little bit about what we talked about, I just want to briefly read through the first three verses of the book of Jonah, because that's as far as we got last week. Okay. And so we're going to read them and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time explaining everything, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page before we take off this morning. So the Bible tells us here in verse number one of the book of Jonah, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, and the word of the Lord said, get up, And go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. And so God speaks to Jonah and he says, I want you to go talk to the Ninevites. I want you to tell them that I've seen the evil and the violence that they've done in the world. And I want them to know I'm giving them a second chance. They need to respond. They need to change their ways. But Jonah was terrified 
to talk to the Ninevites. He was afraid for his life. He didn't like the Ninevites because of what they stood for. They were racially and culturally and linguistically different from him. And so Jonah really didn't want this assignment. So the Bible tells us in verse number three, instead of going to the Ninevites, Jonah got up and he went the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port city of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and he went on board hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. So we've got a a little map here on the screen. You might be able to make it out over there in the bottom right-hand corner where it says Joppa. That's Israel. That's where uh, Jonah was living. And he was called to go to the Ninevites, which was an ancient city in what we now call Iraq, to to the east. And so he was supposed to go overland in the northeast direction, and instead, because he did not want to fulfill this calling God had given him, he jumps on a ship, he goes across the Mediterranean Ocean to the furthest point he could possibly get, this city called Tarshish, all right? Now, with all that in mind, and if you want to hear more about that, some more details and and why this is set up the way it is, go back and listen to last week's message, okay? Let me ask you a question, though. Based on what you know, who is the villain in the story of Jonah? Who is the bad guy in the story of Jonah? Now you might say, obviously it's the Ninevites, Dan. You spent 30 minutes last week telling us what terrible, vicious, violent, awful people they were, right? So clearly they're the bad guys in this story. Eh, I think you're wrong because we're gonna see in two weeks, in chapter number three, the Ninevites actually respond to God's message. They repent, they change their heart and mind. In fact, their entire culture is changed for a generation because of the word of the Lord that comes to them. So I don't think they're the bad guys. Actually, I think they become people that we should respect and honor in this story because when they heard God's word, when they were confronted with what they were doing wrong, they were willing to repent and change their mind. So then you say, okay, well, if it's not the Ninevites, it must be the great fish or the whale, right? That's gotta be the bad guy in this story. But I don't think that's the case either. This is not the next installment of Finding Dory. The villain in this story is not under the sea, okay? The fascinating thing about the book of Jonah, one of the things that makes it so engaging and interesting is that the hero of the story turns out to be the villain. Let me say that again. The hero, the supposed hero of the book of Jonah ends up being the bad guy in this story. When I ask the question, who's the villain in the story of Jonah? The correct answer we're going to see is Jonah himself. Now that might be hard for you to understand if the only thing that you know about the book of Jonah was this fish that supposedly swallowed him up, right? Like if that miracle is all that you have in mind, then you can't imagine how Jonah would be the bad guy in this story. But by the time we get through today, and certainly by the time we get to the end of chapter four in just a few weeks, you are going to agree, yeah, Jonah is the antagonist in this story. He's actually the bad guy in this narrative. Why would the Bible go through all this trouble of telling us Jonah's story, given how flawed he was, given how broken he was, given the fact that he ends up doing the wrong thing essentially every time he's given the option? Why does the Bible tell us this story? And I think the answer is that when we see Jonah for who he really was, when we see him as a real person who battled fears and hatred and a lack of confidence, when he pulled away from God instead of leaning into God, when we see Jonah with all of his flaws and mistakes and sins, we are actually forced to evaluate ourselves. 
As we read through the book of Jonah, we're going to be like, dude, this guy, he doesn't get it right at all. I can't believe he said that. I can't believe he did that. Why did he have this attitude? And as we read about Jonah, we're forced to confront the times where we say and do things that are very, very similar to what Jonah did. Are we really as good as we think we are? Is it possible that some of us, like Jonah, use our relationship with God to justify our bad behavior? This is what the book of Jonah is going to get us to ask about ourselves. I'm just going to tell you guys, this next section and today's message, it is going to be full of hashtag real talk on what's going on inside of our hearts and our minds, okay? So we're going to pick up the story here in verse number four. God has spoken to Jonah. Jonah said, heck no, I'm not doing that. He ran away in the opposite direction by sailing on a ship. In verse number four, the Bible tells us, but the Lord hurled a powerful wind, or a great storm is another way of translating that, over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. As we've done last week and we'll continue to do over the course of the series, I'm just going to pause and kind of pull out some interesting details from these verses as we read them. And so this part of the story starts out with saying, the Lord hurled a great wind over the sea. And this word hurled, it's used several times throughout the Old Testament. And every time it's used, or nearly every time it's used, it's used to describe a mighty warrior hurling a spear. Okay, so when, when the, the writer of the book of Jonah, when Jonah's kind of recounting everything that happened here, when he says God threw, he hurled this storm down onto the sea, it's a way of saying God is getting directly involved in Jonah's life, all right? He is not going to let him run away. He is going to jump right in with full force. Now, you might think to yourself, well, God seems kind of mean, right? He's punishing Jonah for running away. He's making him go through this terrible storm. But as we're going to see, God hurling this great storm into Jonah's life is going to be the thing that saves his life. This isn't about punishing Jonah. This isn't about killing Jonah or destroying him for his uh, sin. Instead, this is about gaining Jonah's attention. This is about re redeeming and restoring Jonah. And we're going to find out that God is successful in that. Now, the scripture says the Lord hurled a great wind. It's interesting because in this passage and throughout the book of Jonah, there are going to be all these parallels that happen between what came earlier and what's happening in the moment. There are these callbacks from whatever verse you're reading to verses and um, happenings, events that came earlier. And this is the first one that we'll see. We find here, the Bible says that the Lord hurls a great wind onto the sea, a great storm into Jonah's life. And it's interesting because if you pay really close attention, this is the exact same description that God gave to Nineveh back in verse number one. In verse number one, he said to Jonah, Jonah, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Okay? He's using the exact same description for the great city as he does this great storm that he sends. Now, you might think to yourself, well, okay, but that's just a coincidence. Maybe the author, he didn't have a thesaurus. He ran out of words. So he's like, this was great. That was great. That was great. Some of you guys got through your English class that way. Great, great, great. That's all you had. Maybe that's just the way that they're writing at this time. No, there is not a single word in the Bible that's there by accident. Every single thing is there on purpose. And so when we see the same description, 
description for the city and the storm, the Bible is drawing a parallel. It's actually trying to communicate something to us. And throughout the the verses this morning, I'm going to be sharing with you some ironic things, some things that are true that shouldn't be true, and this is the very first one. By equating the storm as great and the city of Nineveh as great, The Bible is reminding us, or it's communicating to us, and we'll put the irony here on the screen for you, that in avoiding the great city, Jonah puts himself in the middle of a great storm, okay? This is important, because Jonah is trying to avoid a dangerous situation. He's trying to get away from doing the things that he doesn't want to do. And in the process, he puts himself smack dab in the middle of a more dangerous situation, doing precisely what God had told him to do. In avoiding the great city, he puts himself in the middle of a great storm. So verse number five says, fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to whose gods? They're gods, okay? That's important because they're, the Bible is telling us here they're not, they're not Jews. They don't believe in the same God as Jonah. We might call them pagans. They believe in small tribal deities. They believe in a whole bunch of different gods. And they cry out to their gods for help. And they even threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. So this storm is so bad that seasoned, hardened sailors are fearing for their lives. They are desperate to survive this terrible situation they find themselves in. In fact, the scripture points out here, they're so desperate, they're willing to take their cargo and throw it overboard because the less weight in a ship, the higher it rides in the waves and the less likely it is to capsize and sink and kill everybody on board. Now, these were merchant sailors. Their job was to take cargo from one port and deliver it to another. So when they take their cargo and throw it overboard, they are giving up all of the economic opportunity that they had in setting sail on this journey. They're also compromising their future business potential because if you're a merchant who wants to ship something and you find out the people you gave your merchandise to threw it into the ocean, you may not do business with them again. But this storm is so bad, they'll do anything they can to save the lives of the people on board. They'll do anything they can to save the lives of the people on board. This is gonna be important in a moment. Verse number six says, But all this time, Jonah was sound asleep down in the hold of the ship. So the captain went down after him, and he said to him, How can you sleep at a time like this? Get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will pay attention to us and spare our lives. Now, there's another little callback here. And if you pay close attention, you'll notice that the words the captain speaks to Jonah are the exact same words that God speaks to Jonah in verse number one. This is not a coincidence. This is super important, okay? God comes to Jonah in verse one, and he says to him, get up and go. Then Jonah doesn't do it. And so a few verses later, the captain comes to Jonah, and what does he say? The exact same phrase, get up, and this time he says, pray. Now again, this is not an accident, it's not coincidence. We're supposed to kind of get something. We're supposed to learn a principle from this. And this is so key. It's so good. Check out this irony here, irony number two. Jonah refused to speak God's words to non-believers, So God had non-believers speak his words to Jonah. That's crazy, isn't it? 
I mean, Jonah was supposed to be the mouthpiece of God to these non-believing people, and he refused. So God says, okay, Mr. Holy Man, I don't need you. And he grabs some pagan non-believers, and he puts his words into their mouth. This would have been so shameful for Jonah to hear. Jonah knew exactly what was going on. He must have been like, oh gosh, God, that was a low blow. I get it. That hurts, right? For a non-believer to have the word of God in their mouth must have been such a punch in the gut for Jonah. But it's important you understand when he says, get up and pray, Jonah's like, oh, God is still chasing me down. He's still speaking to me. He's saying essentially the same thing. Watch what happens in verses seven and eight. Then the crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused this terrible storm. Now, casting lots was an ancient practice. It would have been similar to like rolling dice or maybe drawing uh, sticks or straws, something along those lines. Essentially, people in this time used to believe that God would reveal information through this practice. And so the scripture says they cast lots to determine whose fault this was. Because the sailors realized this storm was so severe, it was so terrible, it must be supernatural in origin. It couldn't merely be natural. It was too sudden. It was too intense. They knew somebody must have done something to anger one of the gods. So the scripture tells us, when they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. Why has this awful storm come down on us, they demanded. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What is your nationality? Again, this is one of those callbacks because remember, verse one tells us, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, a Jewish prophet, right? This is back to his identity. Who is it? There's this callback to what he was supposed to do. And because he refused to answer God, now he's got to answer to these ungodly sailors, okay? So look in verse number nine. Jonah answered and he said, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and land. Oh, really, Jonah? You worship the Lord, do you? Seems to me like if you actually worship the Lord the way that you say you do, you would not be in this situation. This is important because it identifies that Jonah's words don't match up to his actions. We would call Jonah a hypocrite, quite frankly, because he says one thing, but he does the complete opposite. So the Bible tells us the sailors were terrified when they heard this, for he had already told them that he was running away from his Lord. Oh, why did you do it? They groaned. Then in verse number 11, Since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked Jonah, what should we do to stop this storm? And Jonah says, throw me into the sea and it will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. That's true, brother. It is all your fault, okay? It is absolutely your fault. Now, Jonah is like, Eeyore, essentially, you know? He's just like, oh, it's all over. Forget it. Throw me into the sea. Kill me now, right? He's got this terrible, horrible attitude. But the sailors have a different mindset altogether. And the Bible draws a contrast between the supposed man of God and these ungodly sailors. So look what happens in verse number 13. The scripture says, instead, rather than throwing him into the ocean, rather than sacrificing him to save themselves, the scripture says, instead, the sailors rowed even harder to get the ship to land. But the stormy sea was too violent for them, and they couldn't 
make it. Again, there's this deliberate contrast between Jonah because Jonah has given up. In this moment, he has completely given up on God. Remember verse three told us he was trying to escape from the Lord, trying to get as far away from God as he possibly could. Jonah has given up on his fellow human beings. He doesn't care a whit about the Ninevites. He doesn't care about the sailors around him. He's just given up on people. And Jonah's even given up on himself in this moment because he's like, forget it, kill me. It's better that I die than try to go do what God wants me to do. Throw me overboard. But the pagan sailors, the ungodly people in this story, they refuse to give up on Jonah. Jonah has given up on everything else. They refuse to give up on Jonah, even though this is all his fault. They instinctively value the lives of the people around them. That's important. They do something Jonah should have done but didn't. They instinctively value the lives of every person around them. So this sets up the next irony here that these ungodly sailors were actually more godly than Jonah. These ungodly, they don't follow God, they don't know the scripture, they don't know what they should and shouldn't do, and yet naturally, instinctively, they find themselves doing what Jonah should have been doing. They demonstrated care for the people around them. They demonstrated community. We're all in this together, and if one of us goes down, we're all going down. They demonstrated resourcefulness by throwing cargo overboard. They were willing to even sacrifice themselves instead of sacrificing one. These guys demonstrated what true godliness actually looked like in this situation. And the irony is they were the quote unquote ungodly people. There's this idea I think sometimes that people have that Christians assume we have a corner on the market for good behavior, you know? We, like people think that Christians believe, oh, we're good people and you're heathens that are going to hell. Every one of you, yes, you're terrible. You're awful. You could never do anything right. We believe we're the only ones that have beauty and truth and goodness and generosity, but that is not at all what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches a principle that we call common grace and the sailors are demonstrating common grace here. Even though they don't know the Lord, even though they don't have access to the scriptures or anything like that, God has placed inside of them his spirit, his image, and they're acting out the way that God wants every person, including his followers, to act in the world. And so it's not that Christians have a corner on good behavior or right thought or truth or creativity or beauty or any of that stuff. In fact, We find it all over the world, even amongst people that believe very, very differently than we do. And so it's important we recognize that sometimes, quote unquote, ungodly people can act more godly than Christians. How many of you guys have ever experienced that before? I know some of you have. You've experienced Christians that were nothing like Christ. And you've known people who are not Christians, and you're like, boy, they sure seem a lot like Jesus as I read about him in the Bible. Now, this doesn't mean that, you know, non-believers, they get it all right. It doesn't mean that God's like, oh, I accept them because they do the right thing. That's not the gospel. But it's important that we acknowledge that we are not perfect and we're gonna screw up and Jonah certainly messed up in this situation. It was the ungodly sailors that had the word of God in their mouth. It was the ungodly sailors who were caring for the people around them the way that Jonah was supposed to. So watch what happens here in verse number 14 and 15. The sailors have tried to save Jonah's life. They've tried to get to shore, but they can't quite make it. And so the Bible says here in verse number 14, 
Then they cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God. O Lord, they pleaded, don't make us die for this man's sin and don't hold us responsible for his death, O Lord. You have sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. And so the Bible says the sailors picked Jonah up and they threw him into the raging sea and the storm stopped at once. Can I point out something that's really easy to overlook in this moment? The Bible tells us they cried out to the Lord. In this entire book of the Bible so far, from the moment we met Jonah, Jonah has not prayed once. But these pagans have prayed several times over. First, to what we would call false gods. Then they pray to the one true God, the one that Jonah is trying to escape from. It is an amazing contrast between the man of God who wants nothing to do with God and people who think they have nothing to do with God and yet they're actually so close, so very close. So verse 16 tells us, the sailors were awestruck by the power of the Lord and they offered him a sacrifice and they vowed to serve him. Jonah says, forget it, I'd rather die than serve the Lord. And these guys, they're like, oh, I guess this is the real God. Let's serve him. And so the Bible tells us they offer a sacrifice and they vow to serve him. And I think this was a genuine conversion because they're not in the middle of the storm saying, God, if you'll just save us, then we'll offer you a sacrifice and I promise we'll serve you forever. Instead, the storm has already stopped. And so they're not vowing to serve God in the hopes that he will save, him, save them. They're serving God because he has already saved them. So I think this is genuine. And this sets up the last of these ironies. And oh my gosh, this is so good, you guys. Because in, in running away from being a missionary, Jonah unwittingly becomes a missionary. Do you see that? In trying to get away from the missionary work that God has called him to, Jonah ends up doing the missionary work that God has called him to. How many guys are thankful that God is still at work even when we act like knuckleheads, you know? Even when I'm doing the exact wrong thing, even when I'm trying to run as far away from God as I possibly can, he is so good to me and every one of us that he refuses to let us get away. He is at work in all things, even when we don't understand or we couldn't possibly imagine how he could work through that situation. Now, I don't know about you guys, okay? Um, we're gonna kind of end right there for today. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I find this whole thing incredibly interesting. Like, it's fascinating. There's so much here. And the whole time I thought it was just about a guy who supposedly got eaten by a giant whale, but there's so much rich and uh, applicable stuff in these other parts of the book of Jonah. Because this is not just a story about Jonah, the runaway prophet. This really is a picture of many of us who claim to be followers of God in 2019. As you can imagine, that's not a super good thing. One of the verses that we just kind of glossed over is verse number six. And I want to put it here on the screen for you so that you can really let this sink in. Verse number six tells us that as the storm is raging, as the ship is breaking apart, as the people around him are on the brink of death, Jonah is sleeping in the belly of the ship. 
Now, if I'm going to be honest, I'm a little jealous of Jonah because I'm a light sleeper. And so when I'm in bed at night, you know, anything will wake me up. Those little rabbits hopping around in my yard, I hear them while I'm, I'm like, what is that? You know, anything will wake me up. I can only dream of a sleep that is so good that I would stay asleep on a boat in the middle of a hurricane. Like that's an amazing night of sleep here. But the Bible is trying to make a point in giving us this detail. It's not like, you know, Jonah dropped an Ambien before he hit the hay and that's why he didn't wake up, okay? The Bible is trying to communicate something to us. And that is that Jonah is so self-absorbed by the issues and problems and pain in him that he is oblivious to the issues and the problems and the pain around him. This is what at least this part, but we're going to see it's really the entire book of Jonah. This is what it's trying to communicate, that this guy who had been called to give himself for the good of everyone else was so selfish. He was so turned inward on himself that he was oblivious. He totally misunderstood the reality that he was living in every single day. See, the Ninevites needed to know that God was giving them a second chance, that he was saying, I I haven't written you guys off yet, and if you'll change your heart, then I would welcome you. They needed to know that. But Jonah's racism and his fear prevented him from going and saying those words to the Ninevites. The sailors that Jonah was with on this ship, they needed his prayers, and he wouldn't even offer up prayers. They needed his help, and he was asleep in the belly of the ship. He refused because of his guilt, because of his shame, because of his selfishness. He, review, he refused to put his private faith into public action. And because of that, Jonah is the villain of this story. And we're going to see Jonah go through some ups and downs, but we're going to see this pattern play out again, where Jonah is so concerned with himself and his feelings and what he has or doesn't have in relation to other people that he's going to continue to turn away from God over this entire thing. In fact, the only way that Jonah is ever going to be turned around from his selfishness is for a true and genuine miracle to happen in his life which is why the very next verses in the book of Jonah say, and the Lord had appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights. That miracle was going to be necessary to turn his heart around. Now, I told you guys that this message was gonna be full of some real talk, okay? And here it comes. We're gonna get into it. And if you're not a Christian, you're gonna be like, amen, yes, finally. And if you are a Christian, I wanna talk to you this morning. I wanna talk to myself because Jonah, the book of Jonah is really a metaphor for too many of us in 2019 in Calgary, Alberta. The world around us is being battered by great storms. People that are very near to us are feeling pressured and anxious and overwhelmed. They're feeling desperate like those sailors. They're feeling hopeless like the people that were around Jonah. Listen, there are people in your neighborhood. There are folks at your office or in your classroom and they are dying physically, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. They are going through that around us, but too many of us Christians are so self-absorbed We are so oblivious to the issues and problems and pain of the people around us, 
we might as well be asleep in the belly of the ship. We couldn't be bothered to pray for the people around us. We couldn't be bothered to get involved and to try to make a difference. If I'm just really blunt, there are too many of us that are too much like Jonah. I think there's a lady on your block, somebody that lives a few doors down from you, and you don't realize it, but she cries herself to sleep every night because she's a single mom and she's feeling crushed under the weight of everything that she's going through. She doesn't believe that she has the strength to hold it all together for much longer. She genuinely believes she's alone in the world. And it's no accident that you and her live on the same block. It's not a coincidence. God, in the same way that he appointed Jonah, has appointed you to be a neighbor to her to be a friend to her, to build a relationship and meet her needs and to let her know that she's not alone. In fact, her heavenly father loves her and he's for her, not against her. But you're so scared of awkward conversations that you've never met the woman, much less met her needs. Too much, too many of us, too much like Jonah. There's a boy on the other side of the planet. He doesn't have access to clean drinking water. And he's probably gonna get a disease from his unsanitary water at some point in his life. And it might even kill him. And I know about it. And I also know it would take $30 to give that boy clean water for the rest of the year. I know that. But do you think I gave $30 to clean water initiatives this week? I didn't do that. I went out to eat three times. Why? because I'm so turned in on myself, I'm asleep to the reality of what's actually going on around me. There are a group of people that hustle Sunday in and Sunday out to make this church happen. I mean, they work their butts off to pull this off so you have a place to come in and encounter God's overwhelming and overflowing love for you. And I'll just speak for them. They would love a little bit of help. Every one of our teams here on Sunday, we could use a few extra hands. And you say, well, I don't know what to do. I'm not qualified. These people would train you. They would teach you how to do what they do. And they would show you how you can make a difference in people's lives when they walk into church for the very first time. And they're like, whoa, I had no idea this is God. And this is what he's like. They would help you get to that point. But Again, just to be really blunt, every time we invite you to come to Next Steps and to join the dream team, you say, I'm too busy. I couldn't possibly. There's no way I could fit anything else in my schedule. And yes, I know you're busy. I get it. We're all busy. I know for a fact we have people on our dream team and they work 60 and 70 hours a week. They have a family to care for and they still manage to volunteer once a month. Why? Because they're awake to the realities around them. They know that even giving an hour a month can make a difference in the world. And you say, Dan, man, this is, you know, part of the thing that I love about Connect is you never guilt us. You never make us feel bad. That's one of the things I've always appreciated about you. And I get it. And I understand maybe I'm laying it on today. But can I tell you that what's going on is not me guilting you. It's not. Instead, what happens when we read the word of God is the word of God reads us. It is like a mirror that shows us who we really are, warts and all. And I cannot read the story of Jonah without recognizing that I'm a lot more like him than I want to admit. In fact, that's the entire point of the book, 
is that God wants his people to not be concerned with themselves, but to be concerned with his mission, to be concerned with the people who are around them because God can change the world through you. We're gonna see how he changes the world through Jonah. And it comes down to love and sacrifice. This is the heart of what it means to be a Christian. And, and it's time that some of you really hear it because you, you need to make a decision. It's time to go in or it's time to get out. You need to understand, Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Like it means we die to ourselves. It means we choose to put others ahead of ourselves. We choose to love. We choose to sacrifice. We choose to serve. We choose to be generous. When deep down in my heart, I don't want to be those things, but I know it's good and I know God can use it. Look at what the Bible says in Galatians chapter number six, verse 10. The scripture says, therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially those who are of the family of faith. James chapter number two says some of the harshest words in the Bible to believers It says, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say to them, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and it's useless. This is one of the tests in which we know that our faith is genuine. It causes us to turn outward, to not be absorbed with what's going on in our hearts, to not be concerned with our own issues. Yes, there are valid pains. I know some of you are going through things that are so horrible, I can't even conceive of them. I get that. But in general, I am way too focused on me. And so are most people who claim the name of Christ. In fact, sometimes we even use our relationship with God to justify our bad behavior. We will actually quote scripture and say, well, I have a right to feel this way because the Bible says da, 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 da. And I have the right to talk this way or to not do that. We, we will actually justify, baptize our bad behavior by quoting the Bible. In fact, this is precisely what Jonah was doing. Those Ninevites are not your people, God. You don't want them. They don't live the way you want people to live. You should just cut them off, forget them. He baptized his bad behavior. We do that as well. And I think the book of Jonah is calling us to move beyond a selfish faith, to move beyond a private faith, and to move into a selfless faith that makes a difference in the public square. Here's the bottom line. If being a Christian makes you a worse person, you're doing it wrong. If being a Christian makes you a worse person, and there are some people that become Christians and they become worse people, you've dealt with them, they're doing it wrong. Because the call of Jesus the gift that he gives us is overwhelming, transforming love. How dare we accept God's overwhelming, transforming love and not show it to the people in our neighborhood, not show it to the guys at our office, not show it to the people on our kids' hockey team. How dare we take God's word, his love and his power hoard it all to ourselves. We are called to go into the world and to make a difference. 
We are blessed by God in order to be a blessing. The worst form of religion, selfish religion. And when I read the story of Jonah, I realize there's a lot about my faith that's pretty selfish. And if that's you too, I wanna pray for you because I believe Jesus has called us to live life overflowing. That is to take every good thing he gives us and because he gives us so much, we couldn't contain it all if we needed to or if we tried to. And instead to put that into the world, to share with others who are in need, to meet needs, to pray for people, to get involved instead of staying asleep in the belly of the ship. I'm gonna pray for myself this morning and I'd love to pray for you too. I'm not guilting you. I'm not trying to make you feel terrible. I'm saying we've all got some work to do and we are in this together. And I believe that through the power of Christ in us, God really can make a difference. Father, I thank you so much that your word confronts me and it shows me the areas in which I need to grow and develop, in which I'm just too focused on myself. And God, you've given me opportunities to really make a difference in the world. And so I pray, God, that I would say yes instead of no. I pray I would go when you send me. I pray that I would have a relationship with you that just, it spills out into the world around me. God, help me not to be like Jonah. Help me to be actively engaged in your mission here on earth because this is what it means to be a Christian. And I pray that that same thing would be true for every single person in the auditorium today. Make us an army of love and generosity, people who will transform cities and nations for Christ because we take seriously the commandments and the missions that you've given to each one of us. We pray this in your name, amen.